Player King, Episode 1. So shines a good deed in a naughty world. A producer, director, and actor of Shakespeare in Southern California for over 40 years, Tom Braddock's artistic career was spent creating and producing professional theater locally, nationally, and internationally. Thomas F. Braddock, as he is professionally known, was the founding artistic director of the Grove Shakespeare Festival, Shakespeare Orange County, a founding member of the now international professional organization Shakespeare Theater Association, and a professor of acting Shakespeare and directing at Chapman University for over three decades. This podcast, recorded over two days, is an imperfect oral history and autobiographical account of Thomas F. Braddock's professional career with his colleague, artistic partner, and friend, Michael Nearing. It captures a period of American theater from the late 1960s to 2013 and a career dedicated to the works of William Shakespeare. We've cut around some of Tom and Michael's shorthand and tangential paths of thought. Sometimes there are word fumbles. Sometimes the transitions of conversation are abrupt. It is, much like theater itself, imperfect. Yet, through the imperfection, it is honest and real. Welcome, and thank you for listening to A Player King. In this first episode, Tom and Michael talk about their childhoods, seeing their first play, and learn some new things about each other after 50 years of friendship. I was in a play before I saw a play. Uh, I was in The Devil and Daniel Webster, and then... uh, our drama teacher took us to see at the Long Beach Playhouse, the loud red Patrick. And all I remember doing is dressing up in my father's overcoat and his hat, you know, a fedora. I was a weird kid and I didn't know, I didn't know how to dress. You dressed up to go to the theater. I dressed up to go to the theater because I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And it was magical. I, I have no idea what the play was about. I have no idea you know, what I saw, but it was the first thing I had, I had ever seen where I saw people on stage performing and they were in costume. They looked beautiful. The theater was wonderful. It was, it was an amazing event. And then we were part of a collective in the audience. Yeah. The second thing I saw, which, which was my junior year, the second play I saw, not, not, I saw some high school shows, but the second play I saw was at the University of Redlands was The Merchant of Venice. And that was amazing. Again, The Merchant of Venice becomes yeah. really important for me in my entrance into Shakespeare. And throughout your career, it's certainly yeah. touchstone. Yeah. You know, I, hearing you say that, I realized I did a play before I saw a play too. I mean, I was completely, as I said earlier, the, uh, 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 it was the Academy Awards, that, uh, the tribal thing that caught me. But then I started auditioning because they did plays when I was a sophomore in high school, and I got Peters the Hermit in Cohan's melodrama, Seven Keys to Baldpate. <laughs> I hadn't seen a play yet. And then we went up that year to ACT in San Francisco, and I saw Eva Le Gallienne in The Mad Woman of Chaillot, which is like a seminal performance, but and a semi, I mean, a really important <clears throat> professional. I had no idea what I was seeing. And it was at ACT in San Francisco. So it was a huge, beautiful theater. And I, I, I actually remember her and I remember that experience more than I remember playing in that first play that I ever did. 
Um, and it's just like you, that, that sense of being part of a family, even in the audience. Um, now, it's funny because clothes are important to me. I have no idea what I wore. I'm impressed that you wore a hat and that you decided to get, to get dressed up. Um, I wore a suit. That's yeah. fantastic. I love it. You know, and I never wear suits now, yeah. but I, but for me, that was what you but, did. Yeah. At the time it was more formal too yeah. in the audience. Yeah. It was more of, a, of an event to go to the theater. Yeah. It was a dress up thing. So yeah. Did it feel really special? Really like removed from your day-to-day -day life? Well, it was special one because I'd never, I'd never been in a theater, uh, yeah. in my life. Uh, and the cafeteria thing was, you know, it was, you had a stage on it, but it was, it was. It wasn't a theater. Uh -huh. And to go to a theater, even though it was a small theater, was pretty exciting. And then the theater, when I went to the University of Redlands yeah. and saw that production. And then, you know, then, of course, we start into college, you know. and, and uh, Where they have theaters like we saw when we went to the theater. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was magical. Unlike what we ended up teaching... I, I was taught by, I took the theater classes and every one of them was important to me. Even the theater history classes and the introductory classes. Mm -hmm. and, and all of a sudden I was exposed to literature, mm -hmm. dramatic literature. Now I had read in, in high school, I had read, you know, Oedipus. Uh, we had read Hamlet in my English class. Uh, was it relevant to you? Did it make sense to you? Uh, it did in a way. I mean... When it made sense is when we spoke it out loud. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So when we got to speak it out loud, it made sense. When it was lying dead on the page, not so much, <laughs> you know, but all of a sudden when, when you started to, majors. Yeah. When you started to speak it, it started to make sense. It fed me as I, as I started to get into this realm, this, this world. Yeah. I mean, so, I, so I was reading plays now. Uh, Do you like reading plays? Not particularly. Yeah, I don't either. They're tough. Yeah. Plays are tough because you have to really grind your imagination into it. Now, the good thing about, no, I don't know if it was good, but the byproduct of not being able to speak when I was a child was that I, that I fantasized a lot. I dreamt a lot. You know, uh, I would, you know, I would dream about, you know, uh, in the mid fifties, I would dream about Russian soldiers parachuting in to our school and I picking up a machine gun. I don't know from where and mowing down Russian soldiers. You know, I remember that and, and the duck and cover, <laughs> the duck and cover drills Yeah, oh gosh. where, you know, the whole side of our classroom was class. the atomic bomb. Right. And then we would duck under our desks. Like that was going to protect us. Right. Yeah. Um, did you, I emotionally committed to that. Oh yeah. I actually, I, I was afraid to open my eyes and look around the room because I thought the flash of the atomic bomb, even though I knew there was no atomic bomb, I think even then I was, you know, given circumstances, I was, a, I was a little bit of an actor just to get myself through the experience. Maybe, I don't know, but yeah, that duck and cover. Because I was Catholic, I was then told that I was special, that I was, you know, that, that people who went to public school and who were protestant um were to be you were to be wary of and uh <laughs> and so i was, I was raised lutheran so <laughs> well the whole my whole, yeah i mean well there's similarities there's certainly differences yeah. and 
and you know, I, I was the thing that kind of saved me, I think in a long way was this kind of Christian Catholic dogma on one hand that fed into ironically a kind of Shakespearean ritual. I mean, the mass itself was a little play yeah, where Christ is crucified and then the, the wafers and the, and the, the wine, the blood and body of Christ are handed out to you, uh, at communion. And so my entire life until I was almost in high school was around the church. My first, the first thing that happened to me was that my dad decided, even though we were constantly told how poor we were, he bought a, an organ, a home electronic organ in the mid fifties, which were very popular. And he was really into liturgical church and church music. That was the, that was the cultural side of my upbringing. So uh, I auditioned and was part of a boys choir and sang in the boys choir for four and a half years. How old were you? I I'd had to start when I was about eight or nine. And, and we actually were pretty good and uh, sang around the area quite a bit. And then he bought this organ and it came with free lessons. And because I was the older boy and my sisters were all out of the house, I was given the free lessons. And, um, which was both an interesting education, but it was also a punishment in that I had to practice every day mm. after school for an hour and choir practice was after school for almost two hours, five days a week. So I was a pretty physical kid. I mean, I wanted to go out and play. I wanted to play ball. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do sports and stuff and I was confined a great deal. And I resented it at the time and for many years afterwards, but it was, it, it fed me a, a great deal of both literature, the liturgical aspects of music. And it also fed me this great polyphony and sound. And, you know, it was the one thing I liked about the church was the music. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it moved me emotionally and it was, it turned out to be an emotional release. I could, I could sing and then eventually play it well enough to vent all of this pent up frustration and anger. So it, I, I, I did have a place to vent it. Was that the first place where you felt your body respond really? That sense of release through your body, yes, the visceral, yeah, release. and and through my voice, yeah, yeah. I I mean, as it turns out, I don't have a very good ear, but I had a fairly, <laughs> as we can talk about later when I did Tevya, I had a I, I had a I had a character voice enough at least to get by, mm -hmm. yeah. So that was you know, I was a choir kid, I was an altar boy, I had this very strict Catholic upbringing, which had a time which was before the vatican II council so everything was in latin so it was mm. very mysterious um and it was all black and white everything mm. was black and white and then somewhere along the line and i don't remember the exact time i think it was 12 or so the vatican council happens and the, the liturgy changes everything starts going into english they drop all of the music and stuff and it starts to become a protestant in, in essence mm -hmm. ritual and I just went, what? You mean everything you just told me for the last 12 years of my life is now not true? Did you miss the, was it more theatrical it, before that? It, it was very theatrical. Yeah, did you and, miss that? 
Yeah, I missed the ritual, and I missed I missed the Latin, even though I at that I didn't really understand it. It, it was mysterious and ritualistic and very Shakespearean, mm-hmm. you know, in, yeah, its, in its own way. The rhythms, yeah, yeah. So that was that was kind of the beginning of, of all of that stuff, and and I you know I couldn't sit still very much. So this is another factor. So when we were in church and stuff, you you kneel, we did a lot of kneeling in the Catholic Church, <laughs> which of course as a kid you, you're squirming and you don't mm-hmm. want to do that. And so I'd get I'd get slapped or or you know I'd get yelled at afterwards, and so I. I became a kid who I think pers- my own personality was outgoing, was suppressed into this having to be silent. This the, the children were to be seen and not heard. Does that resonate mm-hmm. with you at all? Of course, yeah. I'm yeah. same generation. Yeah. yeah. So, nice. you, so I wasn't allowed to say, or, or I wasn't allowed to say anything, and if I said it. And this is an important thing that I learned, and it stayed with me most of my life until I went to Shakespeare and Company, mm. where I, I started to realize that what I had done, and this got me into trouble throughout my life, that what I, what I learned was to tell people what I thought they wanted to hear uh-huh. as opposed to what I felt or was true. And so this search for truth is the thing that eventually led me down that path. But initially, it was being trained Mm -hmm. to basically lie or to get what I needed or what I wanted. I had to try to figure out what you wanted Mm -hmm. me to tell you. And this gets in the way. uh, Eventually, I think it's partially the undoing of the Grove Shakespeare Festival. My, My part of it anyway. My where I take responsibility for it, for not saying the truth early and often enough. And that became, and that then became foundational both to my teaching and to my work in the theater. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. Is that, that cognitive dissonance that happens when you're performative on the outside and you're having a unique, your own unique experience to the world on the inside, but you're not allowed to release it, report it, it's what Hamlet's all about, isn't it? And and I think it gives us that. I'm I'm surprised to hear that from you. I didn't know that about you, because um, you always felt very centered, rock like in yourself, um, especially when you're directing, teaching too, and even in the rooms as a professor. Um, but I also I resonate strongly with all of that because I've most of my life lived a performative life, you know, um, for me, it was the added aspect of, uh, b- being born in the early fifties and being gay in a, in a world that was oppressively heterosex, heterosexist. So, um, and then alcoholic parents. So I too grew up with that very archetypal first child syndrome of pleasing everybody first. And, um, sometimes going months before I took care of the ache, within me and and it affected it i think it also affected our working relationship sometimes because i and my experience of it i think i confused you sometimes because you couldn't understand you seem to not be able to understand my confusion emotionally in processing my own acting um and it's so interesting to be talking about this now you know when it's all behind us um 
And I, in a sense, I have some hope for this current generation that that hopefully, because we're allowed to talk about things like this now, we have opportunities to talk about things like this. You and I weren't allowed. In fact, we were taught not to. Um, like you said, be quiet and show up with a smile on your face and listen to your elders and do everything they tell you. And and yeah, be seen, not heard. Yes, and ignore your your uh, the legitimacy of of your own reactions to the world. Well, what this did to me is when I was singing in the choir, I was okay in front of people because it was an ensemble. Mm -hmm. There was a group of us. We were performing and it, we were very well rehearsed. I mean, it was very disciplined rehearsal. The guy who led it was, uh, uh, he left the priesthood uh, and became uh, a choir teacher and taught music and stuff. And he... You know, I, he wasn't unkind and he wasn't abusive, but he was, he was, he was very strict. And so you had to be, uh, to rehearsal on time. And so all of this stuff, I mean, to this day, I mean, getting to places on time is obsessive for me. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, yeah. And it was born in these days of both of these rehearsals and this discipline that was imposed, mm -hmm. you know, you, you had to, you had to perform playing the organ, I became the performing monkey. So mm -hmm. if somebody would visit us at home, I had to get up and play a couple of tunes and I hated it. I hated having to be up solo by myself in front of people. And, um, the woman who was my teacher and she taught me for about five years ended up, I, I mean, I ended up, I only remember one recital and everybody else was playing piano and I was playing organ, which was one of, because I started right out on the organ. I was playing Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, of all things, which was, I think, my culminating uh, uh, performance piece. But I was so frightened and so suppressed that I, I played it, one, too fast, mm -hmm. that my feet couldn't keep up on the pedals, and um, I rushed off the stage afterwards embarrassed so what happens is <laughs> to back up just a bit in school at this time then they had tests if you wanted to go into the junior seminary and you know and so i took the test and two of us made it and it's the only thing i ever made because the nuns had told my my parents that i was an average kid and that kind of broke my mom's heart in a way, but they stopped believing in me when the nuns told them that I was an average kid. Do you know what I'm saying? That I didn't have any talent or ability. However, I passed this test and it meant I went to this, for my freshman year of high school, I went to this junior all boys seminary in San Fernando called Our Lady Queen of Angels, which it no longer exists, and I think is Bellarmine Jefferson High School now, I mm. think. And I was, and I was there, I, I slept there. It was my first time away. And uh, I wasn't a very good student. And it was a very, very rigorous um, college prep. There was no electives. You know, it was math, Latin, religion, English. But I did pick up one really important thing there because I was drowning. And I had nobody to help me. We had this English class 
And Father Lee was the instructor, and I'll never forget it. And we went through a period where we hit drama. And they taught us the Merchant of Venice as opposed to Romeo and Juliet because we're all boys and, they, and we're also supposedly all wanting to become priests. <laughs> and he taught us the Merchant of Venice. And I'm sure it was heavily edited. I think they took all the Portia stuff out for the most part, except the Mercy and Justice. It was about Mercy and Justice. And we were reading it, and all of a sudden, Shylock's hath not a Jew eyes at, you know, speech comes up. And it it resonated with me in, in a really meaningful way. And it was my first experience with Shakespeare, and it was my first experience with a play, with the play format. We we also read JB by Archibald McLeish, which I think in 58 won the Pulitzer mm-hmm. or something. It was, which is the story of Job. So those were, and it was a verse play. So there's two verse plays that I'm studying in the ninth grade in high school. One of them is The Merchant of Venice. Now, The Merchant of Venice turns out to be, as, as you know, because you were one of the Shylocks, turns out to be seminal for me in my career. It, it, it became the backbone of my getting into Shakespeare. But that was my introduction to Shakespeare, and that was my first introduction to theater, even though it was on the page. And it was because I went to this school. Now I flunked out of the school, you know, and because of that, (laughs) my father was so disappointed. He said, you're not going to go. The local local Catholic high school was St. Paul's. He says, you're not, I'm not going to spend money to send you to St. Paul's. You're going to go to the public school, which frightened me to death, but turned out to be my liberation. Yeah. This is so interesting to me. I, I, when we talked about doing this, you talked about a couple working class kids and how there's a lot of similarities in our background. And and I think, you know, I think of Tom Hanks who came from the Bay Area where I came from. You know, working class. How there's a lot of big drama going on in our lives that eventually ends up. Uh, moving into our our careers uh i'm really interested in that that idea of it's a safe place it's a terrifying place that you found in school i found the same thing i mean as i said earlier it was a tribal connection for me watching the academy awards going i want to be part of that um and the early years in cub scouts with skits in high school it was it was such a blast because it was the whole company i never felt like the attention was on me but as things continue throughout the years and you become more and more of a working professional, of course, the attention starts going on you. And that's when I get terrified. And am I enough? And like you said, I want to run off stage. I want to play it really fast and run off stage. Um, these people who've, who are like, oh, I live for acting. I live on stage. I live in front of that camera. I've never been that. I've always carried this childhood uh, kind of dichotomy of I, I have to do what I love it. And it's completely terrifying. And um there's gigantic figures that loom aren't there from those years for us the nuns the priests the and you know the pastors and in the lutheran tradition for me high school teachers who told me a high school teacher told me once i sang like a whale that has never (laughs) left me it's never left me and i spent what half of my career singing you know never feeling confident in it always feeling always thinking that 
something's wrong, I'd rather run off stage. But I have to do it, so I have to sing because it gets me the job. It got it's how I met you, you know. So this this, I wonder if that's also why the teaching came in for both of us because we were looking at the details of it so clearly and kind of trying to to negotiate that push and pull of it that it's a place where we're very comfortable and it's also a place where we're in kind of deep fear yeah um, yeah it was it, it it was fear it was uh, and i i'm not sure i, I want to back up just a second mm-hmm. because i i told you how i got into how i was introduced to shakespeare through mm-hmm. through that english class I was introduced to theater in a very strange way in that my mother, who you know hadn't gone through high school, somehow became the director of the local mother's club in the parish to put on a talent show to mm. raise some money. Producer. Yeah. My mom was a producer. And I don't – she only did it, I think, one year. Um, and she wasn't really social. So I, I'm not sure how – you know, and she's not around to, to ask. I don't know how she got into that position or whether it was through default or nobody else would do it or she did it anyway. Well, the interesting thing was, was that there was a dress rehearsal of this thing and uh, it was on, a, had to be on a weekend or it had to be after school or something, or it was in summertime. I don't know, but they were in the church hall and there was a, uh, it had been the old church. And there was a stage at one end, and then there was a balcony, much like Bethany, small balcony at, at the back, which was Bethany, the choir, where we did summer which, stop, right? Which was the choir loft, which was a choir loft, and up there was a small follow spot. And because mm-hmm. there were high school kids from the local high school, Catholic high school, coming in to do a play, and a lot of the kids were doing skits and stuff. Um, I ended up, she asked me if I would go up and put on the headset and, and do the follow spot. And I, it was thrilling. Mm-hmm. It, I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. I was able to control the light and it was so much fun and mm-hmm. it was so freedom. And yet it was also a freedom, a, a, a feeling of success that I was doing something meaningful, even though I wasn't going to operate it during the show, I got to operate it during rehearsal. It was my introduction to theater, mm-hmm. was doing that follow spot. And I've never forgotten it. It also led me, I think, eventually to producing and directing as opposed to acting because I really loved every aspect of it. So that follow yeah. spot operator, and I, I couldn't have been more than 10 years old. And I, I, and it only did it one day, but it was, this is showbiz. <laughs> what a, that's, that, it's almost a metaphor. I also, I love just pushing the button and watching the light change. I love those late tech rehearsals where as a director, we get to do that and working with the lighting designer and the power of that, that the whole thing shifts because of what you did with one instrument. That's a heady thing for what you say, 10? Yeah. That's that's very heady, I think. Yeah, and I, you know, and I got to put on a headset. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I, it, I felt important. Yeah, and I felt like you were important. Yeah, and most of the time I didn't feel important. I felt pretty kicked aside and not very, mm-hmm. very well. Certainly not respected. Uh-huh. Not the way 
we try to treat kids today. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you know, kids were the the good thing about it was we were free range and you and and you could go out and play till the lights came on. Yeah. <laughs> the bad thing was was that you were really restricted. Yeah. You know. And so anyway, the follow spot was my introduction to theater in a sense. And then ninth grade was my introduction to Shakespeare. Anyway, I got enrolled in another algebra class and then I got enrolled in a geometry class. And then I had social studies and then I got theater and speech. Oh, theater and choir. So I was in the choir, which was great. It was a mixed choir. Now we're with boys and back with boys and girls. And I had a drama class and I walked into a drama class the first day. And I think there were 15 kids in that class, two boys and all of these girls. And I was like, whoa, this is where I want to be. <laughs> I, I want to be in this place. Mm -hmm. Not that I want to get up on stage, but all of a sudden things were, we, we had exercises and improvs and but but there was also the history of the theater. Also, I had to make a diorama of mm -hmm. of a Greek theater and things like that. So it was there was an academic side to it. Did you love that too? I did. Yeah, yeah I did. Too. I I did. My mom helped me make the diorama of the theater of Dionysus. I remember that. And then they had tryouts right at the beginning of the semester for these one acts, three one act plays. And so the teacher encouraged me to try out. Now I'm the I'm one of the few guys. I'm six two. My voice has dropped. And huh. one of the plays is called The Devil and Daniel Webster. And mm -hmm. I was cast as Daniel Webster. Mm -hmm, of course. So we rehearsed it, memorized the lines. It was a one act. Uh and this other guy, ironically, a, a kid named Randy Moore, and I, I say that ironically, is that my biological father's name was Moore. I didn't know that at the time, but that was in, I, that's kind of neither here nor there, but it was interesting. It was interesting to me anyway. And um, <clears throat> so your, the same thing happens. Your biological name would be Thomas Moore. Right. <laughs> interesting. And, anyway, I, I ended up on stage and the same thing happened. We did the show, you know, with all of these people in the audience in a cafetorium and it wasn't on the stage. They were in the, we were in three quarter. They had created three quarter in the cafe, in the cafetorium mm -hmm. and which was a very popular way of building schools at that time with the stage and the mm -hmm. cafeteria and where you ate lunch is also where you went to, to drama class. It's like 60 or early sixties. Yeah. This is 63. Mm -hmm. So in 1963, and I'm doing the devil and Daniel Webster, I'm Daniel Webster. I've got the lead. And then the same thing happens to me as happened when I was, I just ran through it. I don't know what happened, but I had a big voice and I was able to project and everybody, they applauded. And then everybody came afterwards and said how good I was. Mm -hmm. I don't remember to this day. And I didn't remember what happened. Mm -hmm. I was so frightened that I don't remember being on stage, but I did it <laughs> and I was hooked. It was the first time that I had done something where I received that kind of accolades mm -hmm. and feedback 
that, hey, you're good at this. But you didn't quite know what they were talking about because you I had were no idea. disassociated from I it. had no idea. Yeah. I don't think people realize now how how uh it was kind of a wasteland back then in in terms of addressing people's individualized needs there was none of it I mean none of it because today it's so prevalent in education but but I mean you you were talking about fear of being average you know when you had these these skills and these kind of extraordinary qualities that start showing up in high school and and yet you're not you're not participating in it or or enjoying it even. Um, did you ever? Did you come to a place where when you performed you were you did stay kind of in your body and the experience? Well, interestingly enough, junior year, uh, we're doing cuttings from Shakespeare, and I was cast as Macbeth. Uh, <laughs> a player king is produced by Roland By. Sound design, editing, and engineering by William Georges. Directed, curated, and narrated by Elisa Braddock. The music was originally created for productions at Shakespeare Orange County. <laughs>